I want to continue to talk to you about the presence of the Lord and specifically today talk to you about prioritizing the presence of God. And to just ask you this question, is the presence of God a priority in your life? Is the presence of God a priority in your family? Is the presence of God a priority in your marriage? If you have a business, is the presence of God the priority in your business? I guess what I'm saying is, is the presence of God a priority to you in every area of your life? I had a lot of scriptures that I was going to put up on the screen today, but if you don't mind, I just want to preach from my heart. We'll talk about some of those passages of scripture, but I believe that what I want to share with you this morning perhaps could be better communicated if I just talk to you from my heart. But if you go back to the Old Testament tabernacle, you will discover that the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle was the ark of God, the ark of the covenant as most people know the box by. And that ark of the covenant was not just symbolic of and representative of the presence of God, it was literally where the presence of God was manifest to the nation of Israel, to the people of God. But the problem was that the nation of Israel began to worship the box more than they did the God of the box. And they began to treat the box, they began to treat the ark of God superstitiously. They began to treat it like it was some kind of an idol or some kind of a good luck charm. Just like some people with a cross wore around their neck. They think just because they have a cross on that that's going to keep the enemy away. But the nation of Israel would find out real quick that it's important that important how you approach the presence of God. When you go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and if you do want to just kind of mark some passages in your Bible, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then we're going to move over to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And Jamie has already mentioned this morning, she had no idea the direction that I was going to go, but I'm going to talk today about David prioritizing the presence of God and bringing the ark of God back to the city of Jerusalem. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites and the Philistines are at war with one another. Now keep up with me today because we're going to move kind of quickly through some scriptures. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the nation of Israel and the Philistines are at war against one another. And when they go out to do battle, the Philistines defeat the Israelites, the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel is concerned and they go to God and they said, God, why did you allow the Philistines to defeat us? And 3,000 soldiers, by the way, or 4,000 soldiers, by the way, were killed in that battle. And so the nation of Israel cried out to God and said, God, why? Why have you let our enemies prevail over us? And some of them got together and they said, oh, we know what the issue is. We know what the problem is. We didn't have the ark of God with us when we went into battle. So let's send over to Shiloh and get the ark of God. And we'll take the ark of God with us. And with it, we will be victorious. You see, they thought that if they just had the box with them, they would be okay. 
They thought if they just had the ark with them that they would be okay. And so they again go to do battle against the Philistines. Matter of fact, when the ark came from Shiloh and the people saw the ark arriving, man, they began to shout with such a loud shout that even the Philistines over in their camp could hear the shout from the nation of Israel in their camp. And when they heard that shout, they were terrified. And here's what those Philistines said. They said that the ark of God, or rather God himself, has come into the Israelite camp and we've heard about their God. That he was the God that brought them out of Egypt and the God who rolled back the waters of the Red Sea. So we don't stand a chance against them now that they have their God in the camp because their God was associated with that ark. But somehow they strengthened their courage and went back to battle against the Israelites and this time again defeated the Israelites but 30,000 Israelite soldiers were killed in that battle. And to top it off, the Philistines, a pagan, idol-worshiping people, took the ark of God captive. Took the ark of God captive. And not only did they take the ark of God captive, but also in that battle, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the high priest, were killed in that battle. And so a messenger comes back from the battlefield and tells Eli what has happened, Eli the high priest. He tells him that the Israelites have suffered a great defeat. 30,000 soldiers have been killed. And Eli, in those numbers are your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And to top it off, Eli, the ark of God has been captured. And the Bible says that Eli was old and overweight. And when he heard the news, he fell out of his chair, broke his neck, and died. Well, he had a daughter-in-law who was married to his son Phineas. And his daughter-in-law was close to the time of giving birth. She was pregnant and close to the time of delivery. And when she heard the news about her father-in-law and her husband and her brother-in-law and that the ark of God had been captured, it caused her to go into labor and to give premature birth to a son. And those women that were there helping her give birth, tried to encourage her that even though you've lost your father-in-law and you've lost your husband and your brother-in-law, the Lord has given you a son who will be able to take care of you and provide for you. But she wasn't going to have any of that. Instead, she gave birth to the boy, and here's what she named him. She named him Ichabod because she said, This day the glory of God has departed from the nation of Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured. The presence of God now in the hands of Philistines. Well, we know, we understand that the presence of God is omnipresence. That God is everywhere all the time. That's just who God is. But what we're talking about is his manifest presence. When God works in such a way that we can see it where God moves in such a way that it is tangible to us. And God would reveal His presence. He would manifest His presence in that Philistine camp, but it wouldn't be the way that they perhaps wanted Him to manifest Himself. 
in that Philistine camp because the first place that the Philistines paraded the Ark of the Covenant to because they believed that you could take other people's gods captive and they believed that the more gods that you had, the more powerful you could be. And so they've just added another god through the Ark of the Covenant to their collection. But when they bring the Ark of God into Ashdod, get this, this is hilarious to me, and I think this would make an incredible movie, but when they bring it into Ashdod, they put it into the house of their god, Dagon. Now, Dagon was a stone idol, half man and half fish. He was an inanimate object that they worshipped. And so they put the ark of God in the house of their god, Dagon. And when they came in the next morning, guess what had happened? Dagon had fallen on his face before the ark of God. And do you know what the Philistines had to do? They had to come pick up their fallen down God and put him back up again. I don't know about you, but I don't care to serve a God that falls down and I have to pick him up again. Amen? I serve a God that when I fall down, he picks me up. Amen? So here's what I love about it. It says in the passage of Scripture, it says that they sat it up. Notice, they didn't call their God a him. They called it an it, and that's exactly what it was. It was an it. So they put it back up, but then they go back the next morning, and guess what's happened? That God has fallen over again, but this time his head and his hands are broken off. You remember when David defeated Goliath? In order for the victory to be complete, he had to cut the head and the hands off of Goliath because that represented complete defeat. And that's exactly what had happened here. Dagon had fallen over. His head fell off. His hands fell off. They had to put their God back together again and stand him back up. Aren't you thankful today that you don't serve a God that can be broken so that you have to put him together and stand him up? No, but when I was broken, my God put me back together and stood me back up. Amen. And then the hand of the Lord, the Bible says that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the Philistines and a plague broke out that revealed itself with tumors. And let me just say this about those tumors. The only way you can get rid of them is with surgery or preparation H. You figure that out. And that's the kind of plague. And we'll see in just a few minutes where it was caused by rats. We'll see that in just a moment, a plague that was caused by rats and everybody in the camp got tumors. And so finally they figured it out. We got to get this ark out of here. We got to get this piece of furniture out of here. And so they send it away from Ashdod to another Philistine city called Gath. And when it gets to Gath, the same thing happens. The hand of God is heavy on them and a plague breaks out and they said, we got to get this thing out of this camp. And so they send it from Gath to another Philistine city called Ekron. And when the people of Ekron see the ark coming their direction, they cried out, oh my Lord, they are sending the ark of God and it's going to kill us the same way that it's killed them. And sure enough, the plague came upon those there in Ekron as well. And so finally they said this. They said, we've got to send the ark of God back to its home place 
back where it belongs. And so they begin to devise a plan. How are we going to get the ark of God from where it is back to where it's supposed to be? And here's the plan that they come up with. They built themselves. Now, this is the Philistines. Remember this because we'll come back and talk about it in a minute. But it said that the Philistines built for themselves a new cart. A new cart. We're going to find out in a moment that is not how you transport the ark of God. But they didn't know any better. They're Philistines. They're ignorant of this. And they build a cart and they put the ark of God on the cart. And then they take two cows or two oxen who have just given birth to calves. And they have never had a yoke put on them. And they take these two oxen that have never had a yoke put on them and two calves that they've just, been, they, they've just given delivery to, they yoke them up and they said, Surely if these oxen who have never had a yoke on them will walk away from their newborn calves because oxen and cows won't do that, but if they will walk away from their calves, then we will know that it was the hand of God that was on us but if they do not, if they just wander around and come back, then we'll know that it was just by coincidence that all this has been going on with us. So they make the cart, they hook up the cows, they put the ark of God on it, but not just the ark of God. They also take a chest, and in the chest, a little chest, they put five gold tumors, you know what that represents, there were five cities in Philistine, and so there was a tumor for every city, five gold tumors, and then they took five gold rats. That's why it, we know that it was something caused by rats. And five gold rats, and you know what? The rats represented the rulers of those Philistine cities, and they said, we will offer this as a trespass offering of our sin. And they put those gold items in a chest beside the Ark of the Covenant. They sent the cows away and sure enough, those cows only being directed by God head directly toward Beth Shemesh. And when they get to Beth Shemesh, the people see them coming, the people of God that is, and they begin to rejoice that the ark of God, after several months in the hands of the Philistines, that the ark of God is coming back home. And some of the men got a stupid idea. They said, we might ought to look inside that ark to make sure the Philistines didn't take anything out of it. And when they opened the ark of God to see if anything was missing, 70 of them were immediately struck dead. So that one of them spoke up and said this, How can we stand? How can we dwell in the presence of the Lord? I'm going to tell you how you can stand and how you can dwell in the presence of the Lord in just a few moments. So here's what they do. They say, We're going to send this ark over here to a place called kerjath Jerem, into the house of Abinadab. And they appointed a man by the name of Eleazar and anointed him to take care of the ark. Now get this. The ark of God would stay in kerjath Jerem for about 70 years. And for 70 years, this ark that represents the glory and the presence of God, no one inquired of the ark of the Lord. It's set back in obscurity. That is, until David becomes king over all of Israel. And when David becomes king over all of Israel, the number one item on his agenda is he said, I'm going to prioritize the presence of God.
Not only are we establishing Jerusalem as the political center of our nation, but Jerusalem is also going to be the spiritual center of our nation. And he said, I have prepared a house for the presence of my God. And he gathers the people around and he says, we need to find where the ark of God is. We need to inquire where the ark of God is so that we can bring it back to the city of God, back to Jerusalem in the house of God where it belongs. And so he gathers the people around. They discover that the ark is in Kerjath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. And so David gets his guys together. This is an awesome story. David gets his guys together and, and puts his plan together and prepares everybody to go and get the ark at Kerjath-Jerim and bring it back to Jerusalem. But here's the problem. How many of you know that God's work must be done God's way? And that God's will must be done God's way. You can even have good intentions. But if you're not doing it the way God has instructed us to do it in his word, it is not going to work. And so when David goes to get the ark, you know what the first thing is he does? He makes a brand new cart to put the ark of God on. Now, now what you say, well, what's the problem with that? He's following the example of the Philistines and not following the example of God's word as to what God says about how the ark of God is to be transported. And again, we'll find that out here in just a moment, how the ark of God, the presence of God, was to be carried. But they construct themselves a new cart like the Philistines did, trying to do things the way the world does things, trying to do things the way that man does things. You know what I think that cart can sometimes represent? I think it can represent us thinking that we're going to usher in the presence of God through our programs and us thinking that we're going to be able to usher in the presence of God through our ministries and us thinking that we're going to be able to, to, to usher in the presence of God through our systems. No, friend, the presence of God is not transported through programs and ministries and systems. Amen. And the reason why God did not want his ark on a cart is because he doesn't want anything mechanical about his presence. Somebody say amen to that this morning. Amen. But they make a cart. They put the ark of God on the cart. And you got two guys, Ohio and Uzzah. One in the front and one in the back. The sons of Abinadab. And they begin the process of moving the ark back to Jerusalem. But they come to a place, the Bible tells us, called Nacon's threshing floor, where the wheat is separated from the chaff. And boy, God's about to separate in this story some wheat from chaff. Because they get to Nacon's threshing floor and oxen just begin to do what oxen are trained to do. They begin to tread out the grain. And one of the oxen stumbled and when he did it looked like the ark of God was going to fall off the cart. And so Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and when he does, God immediately strikes him dead because he's been disobedient. He should know more than anybody the thing that the ark of God has been in his house for the last 60 years. He should have known you don't touch the ark of God under any circumstances. And if they had been carrying it the appropriate way, this would have never happened. But what happens? David gets mad. When Uzzah's killed by God, David gets mad. Now, I don't really think David was mad at God. I think David may have thought he was a bit misunderstood by God. I think David maybe have, would have been a little bit humiliated because there's 30,000 people watching this parade. I mean, he's got all of his singers. 
He's got all of his dancers. He's got all of his musicians. He's got the whole production thing going on. But how many of you know that production apart from the presence and the will of God is nothing? It'll get you nowhere. <laughs> and they come to Nacon's threshing floor. He reaches up, touches it. He's struck dead. David gets mad. He's humiliated. God, in front of all these people, I have failed. And all of these, in front of all these people, I, I, I've not been able to, to succeed in bringing your presence back to Jerusalem. But then I also believe that David could have just been mad at himself because he kind of knew that he wasn't doing things the right way. And so here's what he does. I love this. He stops the procession right there. And he puts the ark of God in the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom. Now let me tell you about Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom was a Levite priest from the family of Kohath. And as we're going to find out here in just a moment, that is who God had designated to carry his ark. Was Levite priests from the family of Kohath. And now we're, we're going to see what happens when, when people begin to do God's will and God's work God's way. Because when the ark goes to Obed-Edom's house, the Bible says that the Lord blessed the entire household of Obed-Edom. What looked like was a curse to the Philistines and what looked like was a curse to the Israelites. When it's handled properly in the right way, according to the way that God instructs us in his word, suddenly it becomes a blessing. And David hears that Obed-Edom's household is being blessed because of the presence of the ark of God. And so he says, I want that kind of blessing on my life. And I want that kind of blessing on the entire nation of Israel. And so here's what he does. He goes to the word of God. He goes to the law of Moses to find out how to properly transport the ark of God. The presence of God. And here's what he discovers. That it has to be Levite priests who are from the family of Kohath. And he said they have to be priests who have consecrated and sanctified themselves. Priests who are obedient to God and heartfelt worshipers of God. I'm going to come back to those few things here in just a moment. And so he finally gets it right. And he calls the people together and he said the last time we tried this, we did it the wrong way. Now we're going to do it the right way because when we did it the wrong way, God didn't just break in, God broke out. You, you see, they, they, they got a manifestation of God's presence, but it wasn't the manifestation they were looking for. Hey, listen, you better be careful when you ask God for a manifestation of his presence because if you're not living right, if you're not doing God's will God's way and God's work God's way, the manifestation that you get from him may not be the kind of manifestation that you're looking for. That's why you got to consecrate these priests. They had to consecrate themselves. They had to sanctify themselves. And even then, they could not directly touch the ark of God. They could only take the poles and put the poles through the gold rings at the corners of the ark of God. And then they would carry the presence of God on their shoulders. What does that tell me? That the ark of God, that the presence of God does not come through programs. And the presence of God does not come through ministries and systems. But the presence of God comes through men and women who have sanctified and consecrated themselves. Men and women who are obedient to God. Men and women who are heartfelt worshipers 
members of God. When we prioritize the presence of God in such a way, then God is going to prosper us and God is going to bless us and God is going to reveal his manifest presence to us. So they come into the city and David's acting like a fool. Dancing before the Lord because the ark is behind him. And he is dancing before the Lord with all his might. And there just happened to be a self-righteous woman sneering down. Nothing against you women, it could just as well have been a man. Because we know there's self-righteous men too that look down from their windows of superiority. And that's exactly what Michal, the wife of David, but it doesn't call her in the Bible. Listen, it doesn't call her in this story the wife of David. It calls her the daughter of Saul. Why? Because she's not acting like the wife of David. She's acting like her daddy, King Saul. Because the Bible said that she was filled with contempt in her heart against David. And when David came home, he thought he was going to get some kind of an encouraging word from his wife. But instead, when he walks in, she said, Oh, how undignified the king was today in the presence of the people, uncovering himself. Now, I know that some folks, when they read that, think that David was dancing before the Lord in his birthday suit. He was not. The Bible tells us he had on two garments of clothing. That he had on the robe of a king and the ephod of a priest. But when he was coming into the city, you know what he did? He took off the robe of a king. And he just left on the ephod of the priest. And that's what got Michal angry with him. You took off your royal robe. You stopped acting like royalty. You stopped acting like the king and you just associated yourself with just common, ordinary priests. Do you know the Bible says about us that we are a chosen, a royal chosen generation, a royal priesthood? Do you know what that means? That means we are both kings and priests. We are a royal priesthood. But I'm not going to let my royalty stand in the way of my role as a priest before God to worship him with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so David, David looks at Macau and he says to her, one thing we need to get straight right now. I wasn't dancing for you to begin with. It was not before you that I was dancing. But he said it was before the Lord that I was dancing. You see, David's worship was not just to be seen by men. David's worship was not to please men because if your worship is to be seen by men, if your worship is just to be pleasing to man, then, then it's really not worship. Worship is it's when, we, when we worship because we want to please God. Amen? And when it's worship that is, that, is, that is expressed from our heart, listen to me, if you only knew some of the things that God has brought me out of, if you only knew some of the things that God has set me free of, if you've only known some of the things that God has healed me of, if you've only known some of the things that God has done in my life, then you would understand why I praise him the way that I praise him. Oh, and David is saying that to Macau. Hallelujah. David.
instead of saying that to his wife, he said, it's not before you, but it's before God that I'm dancing. And he said, if you think I've been undignified to this point, he said, honey, you ain't seen nothing yet because I'm going to be even more undignified than this. He said, I'm going to dance to the point that I even humiliate myself. He said, I don't care to be humiliated in the presence of people because I'm not dancing for people. I'm not praising for people. People are not my audience. I have an audience of one and the one that I praise and the one that I worship is the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy of my praise. Oh, somebody give God a good praise right now in this house. If he's been good to you, if he's been good to you, praise him. <laughs> hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. You can sit down just a few more minutes, team. You can go ahead and come. Music team, go ahead and come and get in place. But then I want you to notice that this story ends. And again, I'm not throwing the scriptures up on the screen today. Because I feel like it goes better in story form. But the Bible says, at the end of that story, it says that Michal, the wife of David, was barren, that she never bore any children. Now some, some folks would say in reading that, that God is the one who closed up her womb so that she could not produce children. But that's not what I see in that passage of Scripture. What I see is that from that day on, the king refused to be intimate with his wife. And because there was no intimacy between she and the king, there was no fruit. Did somebody just catch something right there? You see, worship ushers in the presence of God. I'll enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. It's heartfelt worship. It's alone time. It's intimacy between me and the king because I know that if I don't have that, if I don't have his presence in my life, if I don't have that intimate relationship with the king, I'll be barren. I'll not be fruitful. So therefore, I will not speak any words of contempt against any praise or any worshiper. Did you hear me? You say, well, what do people think? What do people think if I just am undignified like David was in my worship? Who cares? Hey, here, here's, my, here's my thought. Folk going to talk about you anyway. Amen. They're going to talk about you anyway. They're going to talk about you if you don't worship. And they're going to talk about you if you do. So if they're going to talk about you, let them talk about you about something that you are doing and not something you're not doing. Makes sense to me. Three, three ways. Now, here we've got to hear this. That we, how do I say this? That we approach and usher in the presence of the Lord. Number one, 
we have to sanctify and consecrate ourselves. Listen, I don't want to just hear about God. I don't want to just read about Him. I don't want to just hear other people talk to me about His marvelous works. I don't want to just hear about it. I don't want to just read about it. I want to experience the manifest presence of God. I want to see the power of God show up in salvations and healings and deliverances to where it can only be attributed to the presence of God. Because you can't attribute that kind of stuff to a program or a system or a ministry. That can only be attributed to the presence of God being in the house. David said this in Psalm 24, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, who can stand or dwell in His holy place, in His presence. And here's what He says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not delivered his soul over to idolatry. So when we're coming into the presence of God, what does it require? When we are praying for His presence to dwell among us, what does it require? It requires consecration. It requires sanctification. It requires clean hands. It requires a pure heart. Even Jesus said this in the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in Matthew 5. We know it as the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not just talk about Him. Not just hear about Him. Not just read about Him. They'll see His manifest presence show up in their life. And that's what this 21 days, more than anything else of prayer and fasting, is about consecration, sanctification, because God is taking us places we've never been before. We're going to depths in His presence we've never experienced before, and it requires a deeper level of consecration and sanctification. Amen? Secondly, obedience. God's work must be done God's way. Hear me, church. His will must be done His way. We can busy ourselves with all kinds of activity, but if it's not what God wants, and the way God wants it, we're just going to wear ourselves out. Amen? Obedience. This is why we have to hear from God. And when we've heard from God, that we immediately, immediately obey what God is saying us to do because it's not enough just to do something. we got to do His will, His work, His way. And then thirdly, heartfelt worshipers. Did you hear me? There's nothing mechanical about the presence of God. That don't mean we can come in and sing a certain song and God's presence going to come in the house. Because I think we feel that way sometimes. Well, if we could just sing that song... Or if we could just do this, or if we could just do that. There's nothing mechanical about the presence of God. Do you hear me? Nothing mechanical. It has to be worship that comes out of your innermost being. Out of a heart of gratitude for what God has done in your life and in your marriage and in your family and in your finances and in your body and in any other area of your life sanctification, obedience, heartfelt worship. Those are the kinds of people who carry the presence of God. 
Because you see, again, we're not going to win our community. We're not going to transform our community with our programs and our systems and our ministries. But we're going to transform this community when we become carriers of the presence of God. And we take the presence of God home with us. And we take the presence of God to work with us. And we take the presence of God to Walmart with us. And we take the presence of God to the mall with us. And we take the presence of God to the streets with us. That everywhere we go, the presence of God goes because we've consecrated and sanctified ourselves and we're obedient and we're heartfelt worshipers and God says upon you I will pour my presence